1: Alice, can you tell me about the last time you checked out the balance of your student loans? Uh, a couple days ago. How regularly are you checking? Um, Quite often, actually. Alice Turner lives in Atlanta, and I do not think it's an overstatement to say her life has been reshaped completely by student debt. What's the number, if I might
2: ask? Like, what's the big number? At the moment, it's 48,258. to The last I looked, now forty-eight thousand dollars. Forty-eight thousand. Yeah.
1: When you see a number like that, what
2: do you think? Um, I think we got work to do. It bears mention that I started this at a high of sixty-nine thousand. You know, it's it's about staying the course. You no, know, for me, honestly, I'm just like, well. I remind myself that it has been higher, and then I've just got more to go. The story of Alice's debt is pretty simple. She chose a college she loved,
1: and then, quickly, realized just how expensive it was. A dorm room, a meal plan, all of it added up. She tried transferring to save money, but the debt kept coming. She ended up dropping out in her second-to-last semester. She got an associate's degree started working in a hospital pharmacy. But she'd been a chemistry major. Her real dream had been to make high-end skin treatments and hair products.
2: I'd get to do a little bit of that. It's maybe not in the way that I thought. Like, I'm a compounder at the hospitals that I work at. And I compound other things. I make a mean butt cream. <laughs> I do it's a signature
1: achievement. It's very smooth. It's been more than 20 years since Alice dropped out. Her debt still haunts her. When I asked how many hours a week she works, she estimated 80. So when President Biden announced in August that he had a plan to offer thousands of dollars of loan relief to people just like her, she was excited. Did you apply right away?
2: Absolutely. I heard it on the news, stopped what I was doing, ran to the bathroom, opened my phone, and got it done in like five seconds. Whoa. Within weeks, though, Alice got a letter from
1: the Department of Education saying, thanks for applying, but this program is getting challenged in the courts, which is why I wanted to get her on the phone now. Earlier this week, this debt relief program got hauled in front of the highest court, the Supreme Court. Conservative activists are hoping the justices are going to declare the whole thing unconstitutional. One of their arguments is that forgiving all this debt would be bad for the economy which we can't really know for certain in advance, what we can know is how it would impact people like Alice. What would it mean to have ten or $20,000 lifted from your debt, just magically
2: gone? Um. It, well, it would feel like a little bit of justice. I'll say that. You have two jobs right now, right? I do. Would you be able to lose one? No, not immediately, because I've put just I have this and a mortgage and other bills. You know, will still need to be paid. But I will say that if I I, I had always intended to go back to school, that could happen a lot sooner to finish your degree. Yeah, and this time, no debt. Hmm. No debt. No, I'm not taking loans out. I, I'm just not ever again. Today on the show, why in spite of stories
1: like Alice's the Supreme Court may be about to take a wrecking ball to Biden's loan forgiveness program. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. Over the summer, President Joe Biden launched his massive student debt forgiveness program. Under this program, anyone with federal student loans qualified for $10,000 in debt forgiveness, and recipients of a Pell Grant could get $20,000. The intention was to wipe out $400 billion in government-held debt in the blink of an eye. Slate's resident court watcher, Mark Joseph Stern, says the Biden administration justified this executive action— under something called the HEROES Act. This legislation was originally passed to help people impacted by 9-11 manage their student debt. The law gives the Department of Education broad powers over federal student loans in moments of national crisis.
0: The idea here was that the Secretary of Education can take a hard look at debt when there's a crisis in this country and decide whether people deserve or need to have certain amounts of debt wiped off the books. The idea was like if there's a whole class of people who are struggling, they get their debt relieved under this law.
1: But it is interesting to me, like the Biden administration is using the HEROES Act and kind of saying that the national emergency that they're responding to here is COVID-19. Is that right? Yes. But is that really true? Like, wasn't student debt a problem long before COVID-19? And isn't this kind of just delivering on a campaign promise that wasn't necessarily connected to the pandemic? Well, so I'll say
0: yes and no. Like, is this law being used exactly as Congress intended and foresaw in 2003? Probably not. Is this program entirely a response to the COVID pandemic and nothing else? Probably not. But let me just say that like the Secretary of Education actually did amass a huge record that showed that there are millions and millions of people in this country who have benefited greatly from having their loan repayments paused, who will be thrust into financial chaos if loan repayments continue and they aren't relieved of at least some debt. And a lot of that data shows that some of the financial struggles these folks face is because of COVID. They lost their job. They couldn't collect unemployment insurance anymore. Uh, they worked in the service industry and they were laid off. They can't afford rising re- whatever. Like There are a lot of links to COVID that the secretary laid out. So I wouldn't say it's like a total pretextual justification. I wouldn't say that it's just kind of uh, deus ex machina. Like, there is a true connection here, but you're also right that, like, of course, Biden also just wanted to do this all along.
1: From the start, Republicans have looked for ways to challenge this program in court. This week, the Supreme Court is considering two different cases simultaneously. The first was brought by two student borrowers who argue Biden's plan is unfair to them, A Trump-appointed judge in Texas used their case as grounds to suspend the entire program. But Mark Joseph Stern says their lawsuit gets problematic right away. Because it's very possible that neither of these people have standing to sue.
0: In order to sue in federal court, you have to show that you were actually injured. And you have to show that what you're asking for would actually, like, fix your injury. And so it's a it's a kind of a brain puzzle who exactly is injured when the government wipes out other people's debt. uh, And that is debt that the government held. Like, you know, you as a person who holds debt. You're not injured. You know, you can choose to have it forgiven. You can choose not to have it forgiven. Another person who who doesn't have any debt, they might be offended. They're like, oh, I paid off all my debt. I have to see all my friends get their debt wiped out. That's not fair. But that's not an injury. And it's not the kind of injury that a court can solve or fix. So like uh, so much of these cases has not been about the HEROES Act. It's just been about who is injured enough to come into court and sue to challenge this.
1: So I guess let's start with the individual case these are, these are a couple of individual borrowers who've brought a case before the Supreme Court like who who are they what are they arguing like how have they figured out what their injury is?
0: yeah so they are they are two student debtors who, for various technical reasons, are not encompassed by this program, and they say that they want a chance to file a public comment complaining about the fact that the program does not encompass them.
1: That seems like a really minor injury,
0: yeah, I mean, it's
1: even more minor
0: when you consider the fact that the the Heroes Act expressly says that it does not have to take public comment, that the Secretary of Education does not have to allow public comments when using the Heroes Act to relieve debt. So like the law says you don't have to take public comments. These two plaintiffs say, oh, but we really, really wanted to make public comments and we didn't get a chance. But then, and this is like the coup de grace for me, they say that to remedy this complaint and this injury, that the federal court should just abolish the entire student debt program for every single person.
1: Even though they want their debt relieved.
0: Even though they say they want their debt relief, they're like, okay, well, if we can't get our debt relief, then nobody else gets to have their debt relief. And this goes to the, the part of standing that I was talking about where you can't just show an injury. You have to show how the court can fix your injury. And here, you know, what these plaintiffs are asking for is not gonna help them. If the courts abolish this program, they're still gonna have $0 in student debt relief. And so the argument for standing here is really, really, really weak. I think even like Justice Samuel Alito acknowledge that a bit during oral arguments. This case was sort of ridiculous. I don't think that's going to stand up. I think the other case is the one that's more likely to produce a result against the administration.
1: This second case against Biden's debt forgiveness program was leveled by a handful of red state governments. Their basic argument is that debt forgiveness deprives them of future tax revenue. Mark Joseph Stern dismisses this argument almost out of hand but says one state, Missouri, has a claim for standing that might just squeak by because of the very particular way they service their student loans.
0: So Missouri, many decades ago, created this corporation called Mohila for the specific purpose of servicing student loans.
1: And the Missouri government created Mohila, importantly.
0: That's right. But at the same time that it did that, it expressly said that Mohila was like a distinct and separate corporate entity that was not part of the Missouri government, that had its own authority to sue or be sued, that had its own liabilities that could not be transferred to the Missouri government. And so this corporation, Mohila, has acted independently of the Missouri government since its creation. So Missouri says, OK, well, uh, you know, if these loans are forgiven, then Mojila will service fewer loans. So it's going to make less money and we're suing on its behalf. But the funny thing is, Mohila came into court and said, oh, just FYI, like, we love this program. Like, we are not at all opposed to Biden's student debt relief plan. We, as a separate corporate entity, are ready and willing to implement this plan. And we disagree with the state of Missouri that it should be destroyed. It disagreed so much with Missouri that it wouldn't turn over its records to the Missouri government when it tried to build up this case. And the Missouri government literally had to file public records requests just to figure out what Mojila was doing. And and to devise this theory of standing based on Mohila.
1: So what did the justices make of this argument? You say that this was like the one argument that matters. So were they really latching onto it?
0: So I think like my, my favorite moment during arguments came when Justice Amy Coney Barrett, of all people, just like blew up this argument for standing. And the lawyer who was defending it seemed to almost like whimper away with his tail between his legs because Barrett kept saying, why isn't Mohila here? Like if, if if Mohila is the one getting injured, why aren't they in front of us? And, you know, then cited like the fact that Mohila actually supports the plan, that it's ready to implement it, yada, yada. And then Kagan, Justice Elena Kagan and Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson sort of hopped onto that and started like kind of beating up on the lawyer alongside Justice Barrett. And they all, I think, sort of proved beyond a doubt in my mind that maybe Mohila has standing to sue. Like, maybe if Mohila were here, then the court could hear this case and decide on merits. But Mohila is most definitely not here. It doesn't plan to be here. And Missouri has absolutely no right under any law, state law, federal law, constitutional law, to sue on Mohila's behalf.
1: Okay, but we're looking at a conservative supermajority yes. in the Supreme Court. So... You can have one conservative justice who's outraged by this standing question. And the folks involved with this lawsuit, the people opposed to the Biden student debt program, they can still win the case. Yep. I I mean, I noted that Chief Justice John Roberts... He seemed really interested in the fact that maybe the administration had violated separation of powers principles here. And it did seem like the majority of conservative justices really wanted to strike down the student loan forgiveness program. Is that fair?
0: I think that's fair. And and I would even add Barrett to that category. I think that Barrett probably wants to strike down this program as well. The question is whether these justices have enough integrity and principle to acknowledge that there are going to be situations where a program is unlawful, but nobody has raised sufficient standing to challenge it. And this was what I think Robert's And Brett Kavanaugh were struggling with throughout the morning, you know, it was very clear that Roberts and Kavanaugh do not like this program. They went on and on about how unfair it was about how it was unfair to people who don't have college degrees and people who planned out their lives differently. And that, you know, it it just gave way too much of a handout to college graduates who don't need a leg up anyway. And yet the Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, who is defending the program, she just kept coming back to this point that like, well, look, even if it does violate separation of powers, that doesn't give you the ability to violate separation of powers to strike it down. And I don't know how this case will turn out. I think the smart money has got to be that there are five votes to to strike down this program, right? It's a super conservative court. There's a six justice supermajority. But- I'm less certain about that than I was before arguments because like Roberts and Kavanaugh are super sticklers on standing. They have ruled over and over again that all kinds of plaintiffs do not have standing to sue for all kinds of technical reasons. And for them to come in and hear say, oh, well, Mojila magically has standing, even though it's nowhere to be seen in this litigation and actually opposes it, like that would be kind of a, a moment of truth for these justices, where we learned that all of their deep principles about, you know, the court's restrained role in our political system, that that was all sort of fancy talk and that when the chips are down, like, they will do whatever they need to to rule against Biden.
1: After the break, even if these cases do have standing, does Biden's student loan forgiveness program actually violate the law? Conservatives are eager to establish standing in these cases so they can get to the real crux of their argument, the major questions doctrine. This means, basically, that when a new executive policy involves a major social or economic question, it's on the president to prove that it complies with the intent of the law. In these student loan cases, Biden's opponents argue that trying to forgive $400 billion worth of student debt raises a major question— about whether or not this is what Congress had in mind when they passed the HEROES Act after 9-11.
0: And that kind of plays into this jurisprudence that the court has developed over the course of the pandemic, where the Biden administration will find some law that arguably justifies a policy, uh, the eviction moratorium, the vaccinator test policy. Those are two great examples. And the court will come back and say, look, we know why you're doing this, We know that you are trying to expand your emergency powers. We know that you're using the emergency as an excuse to expand your powers. And we're going to really look strictly at whether Congress intended to authorize what you're doing or whether you're just kind of playing a word game with the text and using it as an excuse to do whatever the hell you want. And that's the major questions doctrine in a nutshell. The court says, If what you're doing involves a huge, big question that has major political or economic significance, we need proof that Congress envisioned it, that Congress really wanted it. We can't just see some backwater statutory provision that allegedly lets it happen. We want to know that Congress wanted it to happen. That's the major questions doctrine. And that's what All of the conservatives talked about over and over again during arguments. And I think if the court reaches the merits, that's what's going to kill this policy, not just the text of the Heroes Act, but the idea that when Congress passed this law after 9-11, it was not anywhere close to thinking about forgiving 40 million American student debt in one fell swoop.
1: Which, as you've said, is fair. But then again, in the text of the law, it's quite broad and it's been used in a broad way even before now.
0: Yeah, it's a tough question. Like, you know, my sympathies are with the student borrowers. And I tend to think that if this court really is textualist, and the court is supposed to apply the plain text of the law, that the HEROES Act allows this program. But You know, at the same time, it's not unreasonable for the justices to acknowledge that this isn't what Congress was thinking about. And that might sometimes be reason to apply extra scrutiny. I think my biggest issue with the major questions doctrine is that the court has not explained when exactly it does and doesn't apply. So, you know, a great example here, the court said that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects LGBTQ people from workplace discrimination. Why is that not a Major question, Like, why did the court not demand proof that that's what Congress intended to do? I have no idea, hmm. because they didn't say, they didn't even talk about it. And then you come into a case like this, where the government's using this 2003 law to expand the scope of student debt relief, and the court's fixated on major questions. Like, there's no objective guide to when a question becomes major enough to trigger this heightened scrutiny. And that's what bothers me the most about this. All of the latitude and leeway the court is giving itself to kind of adjust how closely it looks at various executive policies, it feels to me like if they like it, it's not a major question. And if they don't like it, then it is.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It's like putting themselves in this like rabbinical role <laughs> of like examining the text and being like, and here's what I think the meaning is. Uh, oh, And, yeah. you know, <laughs> sometimes that feels right. Sometimes maybe it doesn't.
0: And what's ironic is that this is what textualism was supposed to stop. Like the whole point of textualism was that we were going to solve the problem of judges using their own subjective and ideological views to rewrite the law and just allow whatever the law says, no more, no less.
1: And this is a conservative principle.
0: Yeah, it's, it's super conservative. This was Antonin Scalia's like guiding light. This is what a majority of the court claims to practice. But then the major questions doctrine comes and like, knocks down the entire edifice supporting textualism by saying, oh, well, like if it's a really big deal, then the text doesn't matter as much. I I don't see how that can fit into the kind of textualism that conservatives usually espouse.
1: You know, this case, the student loan forgiveness case, it seems like such a good example of how our politics is stuck right now to me. Like, we've built this convoluted student loan system. It's hard to do anything big to shift it because so many people are bought into the system in one way or another. And so instead, we're doing this executive approach to help some people, not the new people coming up, but the people with a lot of debt from before. Seems a little shaky to me. Republicans are fighting against it with their own shaky arguments. Like, everyone seems out on a limb here. Because we just can't get in the room and and talk about how to fix something big.
0: So I, I think that's right. And I think what we're seeing here is that power in this country tends to flow away from the branches that don't exercise it toward the branches that do exercise it. And here, Congress is totally gridlocked. You know, there have been a ton of proposals in Congress to solve or address the student debt crisis, to wipe out a bunch of debt. For a while, Biden had said that Congress needed to do this, that he couldn't do it on his own. Then he changed his mind because he's the president and he gets to do what he wants. And so he you know, issued this program with his secretary of education. They exercise their power. Now the courts are stepping in to review it and they're exercising their power. And it feels like instead of having the normal system where like Congress makes the law, the president signs the law, the, what happens is sort of the president tries to make law based on what Congress may or may not have intended. And then the courts come in and act as a kind of like roving veto. And when they don't like what the president did, they shoot it down.
1: And Congress is sitting there like shruggy emoji. Yeah, they
0: have no, they're have they divided now. You know, the, the, the House is controlled by Republicans. The Senate has to deal with the filibuster. Congress has no role in this when Congress should be playing the primary role. And that's something I don't think anyone disputes. You know, even the staunchest defender of Biden's program here, would probably tell you that ideally it should be Congress that handles this. Congress deals with the purse strings. Congress deals with major policies. Congress is supposed to do this. But when there's a crisis and Congress won't act, like, what's the president supposed to do? He's got some tools at his disposal. He's going to try to use them. But the courts also have a lot of tools at their disposal. And so they might counter him. And it becomes a kind of, like, imperial president versus the juristocracy instead of a government guided by our elected leaders in the legislature.
1: You know, you've written that Biden does have a backup plan here in case his student debt relief program implodes and the Supreme Court spikes it. What is that? Like, what happens next if this plan goes out the window?
0: Yeah, and this was something that actually some of the plaintiffs even acknowledged. Um, I think that if the court does strike this program, it's probably going to leave some room for the administration to come back and try to do a case by case uh, relief plan that allows individuals to maybe say how they have been negatively affected by COVID, to prove that COVID like made it harder for them to repay their debts and that they can sort of petition the government to wipe off some of their debt rather than being sucked into this massive one-time only relief that the administration is prioritizing. And I think that's so because, again, like there's just so many laws, not just the HEROES Act, there's a bunch of others that give the president and the Secretary of Education authority to relieve debt. And they've been doing it in the background all this time and nobody has raised a stink. And it's really, really difficult for anyone to establish standing to challenge one person's debt relief. And so my guess is that if this plan gets wiped out, the administration comes back and does a kind of case-by-case review, tries to relieve a bunch of people's debt, does not relieve nearly as much debt as it would have before. It seems so onerous and wasteful. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's exactly what the administration was trying to avoid. It shouldn't have to happen. I mean, the, the law says that this can all be done on a class-wide basis, that it doesn't have to be done case by case. But, you know, this, this Supreme Court doesn't really care about bureaucratic efficiency. In fact, it seems to dislike it. And so it would not surprise me at all if the court sort of thrusts this burden onto individual borrowers to prove that they deserve relief instead of allowing them to just, you know, fill out a form and get $10,000 wiped out overnight.
1: And that case-by-case case basis, that's something that's allowed under more than just the HEROES Act. So it wouldn't be sort of stapled to this 9-11 era law.
0: That's right. There are other provisions that that would allow for this. And the administration has already used some of those provisions, again, to wipe out tens of billions of dollars in debt. And I think it will be aggressive and proactive about wiping out debt. But nothing will compare to this plan because this, you know, waves goodbye to $400 billion all at once. That is sort of the gold standard of debt relief. And again, it seems more likely than not that it just ain't going to happen.
1: Mark Joseph Stern, I'm super grateful for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Always a pleasure, Mary. Mark Joseph Stern is a Slate senior writer covering the courts and the law. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting a ton of support right now from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. I am handing things off to Lizzie O'Leary and the What Next TBD crew for now. I'll be back in this feed on Monday. Catch you then.
2: America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity and the American dream starts with purpose.